Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now we've had read Psalm 32, and uh, I want to turn you to that passage again, Psalm 32, and in particular to verses 3 to 5. Let me read those verses again. Psalm 32, verses 3 to 5. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, life is a complicated business. We all spend our days juggling competing priorities, trying to keep the plates spinning, uh, trying to make sure uh, the show is kept on the road. And one of the great dangers is that in the midst of all of that, we lose sight of what is most important. Uh, It's true, isn't it, that the urgent is always the enemy of the important. And one of the great things about church is that uh, we set aside the urgent in order to focus upon the important and the ultimate. And that's what I want to do with you uh, for the time we've got this morning. Uh, For as complicated as life is, as full of urgent priorities as it is, uh, everything actually just boils down to two great needs. And they're both there in Psalm 32. And uh, whatever else may go wrong in life, whatever other plates may shatter on the floor, uh, whatever part of the show may stop rolling down the road, if we have got these two things clear, 
If we are living in the light of them, if they're part of our spiritual DNA, then everything's going to be okay. So what I'm after this morning then is just to hold up these two things. One is negative, one is a a warning, and one is wonderfully positive. And so uh, these two things are what I want us to, to focus on. Uh, the negative is, is this. We'll start with the negative. Uh, there is a, there is a, not to be true dramatic, there is a deadly poison that we're all instinctively drawn to. And we need to be warned against it. We need to get it out of our system once and for all. And the deadly poison is to spend our lives hiding and pretending. So I want us to think about that. But then secondly... Uh, there is a, a life-giving water uh, that we need to be drinking deeply of, day by day, that needs to be part of our lives and at the center of our existence. And so I want us to think about this life-giving water, which is to, well, hand our sins to Jesus. So those two things uh, are what I want to, to think about. So let's Let's dive in, if that's okay. We'll come to the, the first point and uh, think about this poison. Think about the hiding and the pretending that comes naturally to us as, as human beings. Now, when you come to this psalm, you find that that's what David has been doing. Psalm 32 is usually linked with Psalm 51, which is usually linked with the story of Bathsheba, and Uriah, which you can read about in 2 Samuel 11, and also Nathan coming and confronting King David in 2 Samuel 12. So we didn't read it all, we'd be here for a while if we read that lot, but uh, let me summarize it for you. It's a horrible story. Uh, It's a story of adultery, it's a story of murder, it's all aggravated by a cover-up. So David, the king, has lusted after Bathsheba and committed adultery with her. Then he's killed Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, in order to cover up the fact that Bathsheba is expecting his child. And he manages all of this, marries Bathsheba. Uriah's out of the picture. It sort of looks okay, more or less. And David's plan is just to carry on, hiding pretending, uh, keeping secrets, all that he has done. Uh, But he's forgotten God, and uh, God sends the prophet Nathan, who takes his life in his hands, and with a tremendous piece of oratory, with a tremendous uh, piece of storytelling, he exposes David's sin. Now, Psalm 51 then records David's repentance. And Psalm 32 is David a little bit later looking back and just remembering what it was like when he was hiding and pretending. Remembering what it was like when he was burying it all deep. On the surface, he was keeping the show on the road. On the surface, the plates were still spinning. On the surface... He was still doing everything that he 
thought he needed to do. It looked okay. But listen to him, verse 3 and 4, as he talks about what was going on on the insides. He says, when I kept silence, when I was hiding my sin, when I was pretending, when I thought I'd covered it up, when I kept silent, he says, everything looked okay. Nobody would have known. But when I kept silent, he said, there was something terrible going on on the inside. He says, my bones were wasting away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, he says to God, your hand was heavy on me, his conscience. And my strength, he says, was sapped as in the heat of summer. So externally, everything was moving forward. Everything was okay. But on the inside, uh, there was a price to pay. And he'd lost his joy. He'd lost his peace. He'd lost his strength. And uh, everything was was difficult. It was like one of those really hot summer's day. We don't have them in Cardiff, but I imagine you do over here uh, when the sun is shining and it's really too hot to do anything and uh, any kind of activity leaves you exhausted. Well, that's what every day was like for me, he says. Because I was carrying the weight of what I'd done. So David here is, is talking about the deadly poison of hiding and pretending. It's what he'd been doing. Now, my point is that this is a live issue for all of us too. It's not just David that hides and pretends. It's an instinct that every human being has. And one of the things we need to grasp in life is, is that our problem is not really our sin. Because sin can be forgiven. You know, Jesus has paid for sin. Our problem is that we, we don't take it to him. Our real problem is that we, we, we hide And we pretend. Our real problem is we try to manage it ourselves. That's what David is doing here. Uh, He knows in theory that sins can be forgiven. But he's, he's not coming clean. He's not bringing his sin. He's handling it himself. He's managed to cover it up. He's managed to, uh, make it look okay. He's, he's spending his energy trying to control it. Now, I think that's a live issue for us. Uh, and it's, it's an attitude and an attempt that didn't start with David, uh, just as it didn't finish with David. It's actually got a really long history. You, you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, uh, you go back to the very first sin, and you find there in Genesis 3 an immediate attempt to cover it up. The instinct to hide, it almost goes along with sin. The instinct to pretend, it, it's just part of our instinctive reaction to it. So Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden. Everything is uh, pristine. Everything is as it should be. 
And yet they sin and rebel against God. They try to replace him. They believe the serpent's lie. They take the fruit. They eat the fruits. And everything changes when they hear God coming now to walk and talk with them in the cool of the day. Instead of coming out to meet him, uh, we are told that they head for the bushes. And they, they hide the undergrowth. We do that. We don't like to be alone. We don't like to think about maybe what's within. We don't like to reflect on the past or the present and what we've done. So we'll look for some undergrowth to hide in. The undergrowth of activity, perhaps, of distraction or achievements. We'll hide so that nobody else can see and so we don't have to see what's really going on in our hearts. Or we'll, we'll grab a fig leaf, which is what they tried next. We'll try to create a covering, some righteousness that we could hide behind. Maybe we can try and hide behind our personal morality. Okay, we've sinned in certain ways, but there are things we haven't done, so we'll hold that up. We'll make much of that. I'm not that person, I'm this kind of person. And uh, we can try and hide behind that. Or we'll use coming to church as our fig leaf. And whenever the conscience starts to prick us, we'll say, well, hang on a minute. We, we, I, I was in church on Sunday. It's okay. And, and we'll hide behind it, just as Adam and Eve did behind their fig leaves. Or we'll, we'll have a social conscience. Or we'll uh, have an ecological conscience. Or we'll plead our authenticity. Or we'll find some of the status that we possess. And failing all of that, of course, we just try to blame game. That's what Adam and Eve did. They didn't just hide in the undergrowth. They didn't just try and grab a fig leaf. They blamed each other. And so when God calls them, where are you? And he brings them out of the garden and he asks uh, what's going on and he confronts them with their sin straight away there's the shifting of blame and and Adam really takes the biscuit when he says it was the woman that you gave to me it's her fault it's your fault nothing to do with me and of course we we become expert at this and uh, the whole history of the world really is the the history of people who are hiding and pretending and 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 uh creating fig leaves, living in the undergrowth, a smoke screening by pointing out the faults and failings of others. And what David is doing here, magnificently and crucially and importantly for us, is he is discrediting that whole attempt. David now is looking back on it. And he says, you know, I was doing that. I must have been mad. Whatever was I thinking? Uh, And so the message of verses 3 and 4, the message David wants to communicate to the people, to us, is that it's insane to try and manage your own guilt. It's insane to try and manage your own shame. It's madness to try and conceal your sin problem. And so verse 3 and 4, they're focusing on the sort of psychological level He says, it had a horrible impact on me as I tried to keep all this under wraps, sapping my strength 
uh, God's hand heavy upon me, uh, my bones wasting away, groaning all day long. But of course, that's only the beginning. (sighs) Ultimately, to hide and pretend to try and manage our own sin problem is something we're just not going to be able to do. And however long you manage to hide, and however long you manage to pretend, and however long you manage to uh, manage, there'll come a time when God will come for you, uh, just like he did to Adam and Eve in the garden, and he'll summon you before him uh, when you die, or on the day of judgments, and he'll be asking you, what have you done? Uh, and there will be in a day of exposure, and we'll, we'll then, when it's too late, be exposed for everything we've pretended about, everything we've ever hidden. So, uh, there's the negative point that we need to hold up this morning. Um, life is a complicated business, but the first priority we must always seek, always pursue, is to refuse to hide and pretend. We must get rid of that deadly poison that will affect our lives and ultimately destroy our souls. Our sin is too big for us. That's what David's saying. You can't hide. You can't pretend. Now, that was the negative. Have I depressed you? Okay, wasn't my intention, but, you know, let's move quickly to the second. Uh, because the big thing David's doing here is not going on and on about hiding and pretending and conviction of sin and guilt. You know, the big thing he's doing is to tell us there's another way. Uh, this is a psalm full of good news. And I want this to be a message of good news. There is life-giving water here for us to drink deeply of. And this other way that he presents, instead of hiding and pretending, instead of covering up, we should simply confess and repent and open up our hearts to God to make ourselves completely vulnerable to him, to tell Jesus everything that's going on, to unload our sins, to unload our guilt, to unload our shame onto the shoulders of Jesus Christ. You know, that is the life-giving water. That is the, the gospel life. That is the way a Christian, a believer lives. And so there's the big point of verse 5. You know, verse 3 and 4, he's been talking about the, the pressures of concealing and hiding and the consequences of that at the psychological level. And then verse 5, he changes the tone. And he says, but you know what? Uh, then I saw the light. Uh, Nathan the prophet came to me and he exposed my sins. And I, I, I did the Psalm 51 thing. I realized I cannot manage my sin problem. And I realized... I don't have to. The the wonderful thing that God has done is take our sin problem off our shoulders and to deal with it himself. You know, if you're not yet a Christian, that's what will make you one. 
But you know, if you are a Christian, David was a believer here when he's hiding and pretending. It's totally possible for Christians to still hide and pretend. So if you are a Christian, uh, you have got to recognize the ongoing need to stop drinking the poison and instead to be unloading day by day, moment by moment, the sin problem that you still carry uh, to Jesus himself. Now, that's not rocket science, is it? Stop trying to manage it yourself. Give it to him. You do that all the time in lots of areas of life. You know, I am not gifted in a practical sense. You ask me to paint a wall, and I will paint the wall, and while I'm holding the paint in this hand, it will slowly tip, and there'll be more on the floor than on the wall. And so it's a great burden to me to paint a wall. It's a greater burden for me to wire a plug or to do anything practical like that. My sister got all those gifts. She's amazing. Um, So what do I do? Well, I don't attempt it. I don't try and manage that. It's not my ability. It's outside my skill set. I recognize my incompetence. And my wife does it. You've got to hand it over, you see. You've got to hand it. She's great. You've got to hand it over. Now, it's exactly the same. We do it all the time. We recognize our limitations. We hand over what we simply cannot manage ourselves. Well, now, on the ultimate level, on the ultimate level, that is what we've got to do. That's how you become a Christian in the first place, and it's how you flourish as a Christian. You have to hand over this great sin problem. Not rocket science. But actually very hard to do. Very hard to do. So, for the rest of the time we've got, I'm going to throw out a few things that I think we need if we're going to get to the point where we are confessing and repenting instead of hiding and pretending. So I'm going to make some recommendations. Uh, The first is this. If you want to stop drinking the poison, if you want to drink the life-giving water, if you want to stop hiding and pretending, if you want to start confessing and repenting, then the first thing you've got to do is, is want this. You've got to recognize this is the way it's supposed to be. You've got to recognize that this is how life is meant to be lived. You've got to see that this is a priority, that these things, these two things are at the center. You've got to want this. Now, I think that is the great purpose of this psalm. Why is David writing this psalm? We've got Psalm 51. Isn't that enough? We've got the record of his repentance. Well, well, it's because he wants us to realize that that repenting, which is never a pleasant experience, that that repenting is actually a good thing that takes us to a good place. And so what he wants us to see is that if we will stop pretending, if we'll come out of the bushes, if we'll throw away the fig leaves, if we'll stop smokescreening and blaming everybody else, if we'll actually open up to Almighty God and begin to tell him what he knows already, but we think he doesn't, is going on in our hearts, wonderful things will follow. Wonderful things will follow. Why? Well, because God is not who we think he is. God is not some vindictive, 
brutal, disapproving taskmaster who's out to get us. He is the father you maybe never had. Uh, He's certainly the friend you've never had. And the Bible says of him that he is rich in mercy. Uh, So there is a superabundance of mercy in God. And when a little scrap of humanity comes before him and very anxiously and very worriedly begins to open up a little, lift the lid, pull back the curtain on the self-talk and the fears and the hate and the anger and the guilt and the shame. Though God is unspeakably holy, it's his mercy that shapes his response. And so you are not vaporized the moment you begin to come before God and confess. You are not condemned to hell. Instead, you find there's this loving father who sees you coming a long way off and who lifts up his robe and he runs to meet you. And he doesn't run to meet you to give you a piece of his mind. He runs to meet you to throw his arms around you to welcome you back into the family, to take the rags off you, to put the best robe on you, to put a ring on your finger and shoes on your feet and give you back a seat at the table. Verse 1 here sums it up. The very first word of verse 1 and verse 2, it says, blessed, blessed. It's a big Bible word, blessed. It means happy, only it's more than happy. It means the state of benevolent blessing and goodness, the state of God smiling upon you, the state of God accepting you. Blessed. It means the fulfillment of your longings and aspirations. It means the dispelling of your fears and your anxieties. It means security. It means confidence. It means hope. Blessed is the one. And uh, the the psalm ends with the same thing. Uh, What does blessedness produce? Well, verse 11, it produces joy. So what does David want from us? What does God want us to be? Not sorrowful, trying to manage our own sin, but as the psalm ends in verse 11, rejoicing and being glad and singing. You know, that's why Christians sing, you know. Uh, We've got something to sing about. You know, who we once were is no longer who we now are. We have been taken out of the pit. We've been lifted out of our sins and our fear and our guilt and our shame. And God has put our feet upon a rock and he's put a new song in our mouths. And many will see it and fear and put their trust in the Lord. That's what a church is meant to be. It's meant to be alive with joy and thanksgiving and hope and praise. Why? Because we're better than everybody else? No, because we're admitting we're worse than everybody else. And so the church gives hope to a community by being the only institution on earth that habitually and continually confesses what terrible people we are and experiences complete forgiveness. Don't you want that? I once met a guy, he's a young man, and uh, he, he, he was in a market. Our church used to have a stall, a Christian bookstall in this market. 
in a beautiful part of Cardiff called Splot. Don't ask, but that's what it's called, Splot. Anyway, Splot Market, there we were with our books, and um, uh, this guy came along, and he was different. You could see he was different. He was floating. There was this luminosity about him. It was, it was incredible. He thought this guy's on something or something like that. Anyway, we got talking to him. Uh, young guy, 18, 19. Turns out he'd just come out of prison. And he'd been on remand. There's a big remand wing in Cardiff prison. He'd been on remand for many, many months and uh, accused of a crime which would have produced a long custodial sentence. He'd have been well into his 30s before he came out. And the day before, he'd been acquitted. Not guilty. And so this guy, he was, he was out of those prison clothes. He'd gone home to his family. And his life was beginning again. And so he's flying. He's three feet... Oh, goodness knows what he was doing in Splot Market on a day like that. But that's where he was. And, uh, and, and as I spoke to him, I thought, do you know what? You understand what it's like to be a Christian. You are experiencing in a little tiny degree what it's like to be a believer in Jesus because we have faced the ultimate accusations and we face the ultimate judge and we too have heard, not guilty. And so it's like being born again. It's like having new life. It's like being a new creation. Everything changes. Heaven above is softer blue. Earth beneath is sweeter green. Okay, so want this. Do you know a church like that, a church full of people like that is a wonderful thing. There's a, there's a spiritual magnetism about that. The world sees it. The world senses it. Uh, they, they are humble people and yet they're secure people. Uh, there's a reality about them and yet a, a hope about them. There's a freedom about them and yet they, they want to serve others. They sacrifice, but they do it with joy. And there's a love there, even though they have a holy dissatisfaction. So there's the first thing. If we want to drink of this water, then the first thing we've got to do is get it on the radar. This is what life is about. We need to drink it. We need to want this. There is more joy than you have yet received. There is more life than you have yet received. Go deeper. Drink deeper. There's the first thing. That's what this proverb, uh, sorry, proverb psalm is trying to do. So there's the first thing. Second thing to help us move towards the freedom being described here is that we need to make sure we've got a Nathan in our lives. David, to go a little bit of rewind on the story, David, when he was hiding and pretending, thought the story was done. He'd done the sins, he'd covered them up, he was moving on. Uh, But God had other ideas. And so God sends the prophet Nathan. And so read about it in 2 Samuel 12. It's not an easy task that Nathan had. And he comes with this brilliant solution. He tells David, the king, the ultimate judge in Israel, he tells him about a situation that outrages David. And uh, David is angry about the story he's hearing, the report he's hearing. 
And he pronounces judgment on the perpetrator. He says, the man who's done this must die. And then Nathan sort of reveals his true agenda. And he says, you are the man. You see, the story was just a a parable. And it paralleled what David had done. In the story, a man steals the lamb to feed a guest rather than use one of his own flock. And David's outraged about a man who would take the one thing that another man had uh, when he had plenty of his own. And his dander is up, as they say, or used to say. He's an angry man and he pronounces judgment. And Nathan says, that's what you've done. You are the man. And uh, that's the moment when all of David's house of cards begins to collapse. We need a Nathan in our lives. Have you got any Nathans in your life? Is there anybody in your life that loves you enough to speak like that to you? Is there anybody you've given permission to? There needs to be. Somebody, not too many, but if you haven't got one, get one. Somebody in your life with permission to tell you the truth. It's called having a friend. And we need to get a friend, probably more than one. Like I say, not too many. You don't want everybody doing a Nathan on you. Life will get a little tricky. But you need some in your life. On top of that, I would say, I would ask you and point out That's the role that the Bible is supposed to be playing in our lives. This book, as we read it day by day as Christians, it's supposed to be our Nathan. It's supposed to be putting its finger uh, and exposing our hypocrisies and our hiding and our pretending, among other things. But it's supposed to have this ongoing need to convict us and to show us uh, how we still need Jesus and we need more of his grace and more of his love and more of his forgiveness. We need to grow and change and transform. And when you come to church, what do you want from your preacher? Do you want a preacher that's just going to make you feel better? Uh, give you a bit of uplift, ready for the week to come. I would say, do not go to a church where that's all you get. You need that preacher to be a Nathan to you. You need him to speak the truth in love. You need him to use the law to search your heart. And then you need him to show you Jesus and the fullness of his love. Get an Ethan in your life. Be open to that. Look for it. Look for moments where the word has searched you and exposed something. We need that. When was the last time? It happens. Then a third thing that can help us move towards and drink this life-giving water. The first one is you've got to want it. Second thing is you've got to get a Nathan in your life. Third thing is you've got to see really clearly what Jesus has done. If you can't see really clearly, if it's not in focus, if it's not in the foreground then really I'm wasting my time this morning because you will never stop hiding. You will never stop pretending. You will never be able to take everything I've been saying unless you understand that. See, maybe maybe you sat there today and I would totally sympathize with this and you're saying, look, there's no way I can do this. 
how could I face up to the things that I've done? I, I, I can't go there. Well, that's a legitimate concern. And there's only one answer to it. And that's to understand what Jesus has done. The fullness of it, the freeness of it, the certainty of it, the completeness of it. Now, we saw earlier on Adam in the garden hiding. But you know, later in the Bible, there's another garden. Uh, Not a paradise, but the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, as I say, it's no paradise, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the last night, the day before Jesus is crucified. And he's there in the garden with his disciples. And the soldiers are coming. And they're going to arrest him. And they're going to take him to trial. And uh, he's going to be condemned. And he's going to be crucified. So there's Jesus in the garden. And the human race is coming for him. The human race is finally going to get its hands on him. The human race is finally going to do what it wants to do with the Son of God. But what's so striking is that Jesus does the opposite of Adam. You know, when God comes for Adam, Adam hides in the bushes. But Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he comes out to meet his accusers. John 18, verse 3, Judas is coming to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they're carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. They're coming to take on the Son of God, to arrest the Son of God, to bring him to trial. They're coming for him. And then verse 4 says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, he went out. He doesn't hide, he doesn't disappear into the periphery, into the depths of undergrowth in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, he goes out and he asks them, what is it you want? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus doesn't hide it. He says, I am he. He meets it. Not like Adam, he meets it. Now, now what is he doing? Why doesn't he hide? Why doesn't he disappear? Why would the Son of God submit to the hatred and the hostility and the brutality of human beings, of the world, come to get him? Why why does he so openly come? Well, the answer is astonishing. What he's doing is very simple. He is saving us. He's saving us. In fact, verse 8 of John 18 says that. He says to them, I am he. And then he says, if you're looking for me, he says, then let these men go. Let the disciples go. Uh, I am he, Jesus says. He says it again. I am the one you're looking for. Take me. Arrest me. Condemn me. Crucify me. Let these people go. Now there, in, in a moment, they're captured is the whole reason for Jesus' life on earth, the whole reason for his coming into the world, the whole reason for him submitting to the cross, the whole reason for him being silent before his accusers, the whole reason why he doesn't call down 12 legions of angels, the whole reason why he doesn't vaporize a lot of us, is because he's come as the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. You see, this is how we face up to what we are. It's in the light of the atonement that Jesus has made. 
It's in the light of the fullness of that atonement. It's in the light of the free forgiveness that that atonement brings. It's in the light of the redeeming grace and the covenant love that that atonement, that cross, secures, demonstrates, illustrates, and brings into our lives. You've got to understand what Jesus has done, or you'll never, ever face up to your sin. But when you know that, when you know that it's forgivable, when you know that atonement has been made, when you know that it can all be wiped away, when you know that there's a covenant love waiting to receive you and forgive you, can you not, could you not deal with that? Could you not embrace that? Could you not face up then? I mean, it's like... Um, some some great illness, you know, I don't want to pick one because somebody's probably got it, but some great illness and you don't want to know about it. You know, you got to the age where they send you those little packs in the post saying they want to test you for this illness and that illness. Well, you don't want to do it, do you? You don't want to find out. You don't want to think about it. But surely if you knew that whatever that illness, however profound it was, there was instant healing for you, Surely then you could face the test. Surely then you could do what needed to be done. Surely then you could go to the doctor. Actually, it's insane not to, because if you stay on your own, it's going to kill you. But if you'll open up, if you'll come and face the truth, there's healing, there's forgiveness, there's transformation. That's how we face up to what we are. You've got to see in a, in a real crystal clear way, what Jesus has done. Now, they told me the service is two and a half hours. They didn't. They did say one and a half, so uh, I'm giving you the fourth final bit here. Um, we're talking about this other way to live, this life-giving water way to live, this confessing and repenting instead of hiding and pretending. And we're talking about how you get there. Well, you've got to want it. That was the first. You've got to get a Nathan in your life to expose what you're not willing to see. And you've got to understand what Jesus has done, knowing that it can be fully forgiven. The last thing is, I really think we need to start talking to ourselves. Did you know every single Christian is a preacher? I don't mean you're supposed to witness to other people, though that's true. But the first person you've got to witness to is yourself. You've got to preach to yourself. You've got to talk to yourself. So let me give you, as we finish, some of the questions you need to be asking yourself day by day. You need to be asking yourself, is God working in my life? Is, the, is his hand on me? Is there anything going on? Am I discovering more about my sinfulness? Am I growing in grace? Is God working in my life? Uh, not so much is he working for me, or not so much is he working through me, but is he working in me? Am I growing? Is God working in my life? Preach that to yourself. Ask yourself that question. Another thing to preach to yourself, uh, are you doing business with the cross? Every day. Is your heart being melted by the man of Calvary and his sacrifice every day? Do you go to Golgotha every day? Do you sit in the dark every day? Uh, do you uh, hear him cry? Uh, 
My God, why have you forsaken me every day? Do you hear him say, I thirst every day? Do you realize that he's thirsting so you can drink this living water? Do you realize he's in the dark so that you can be in the lights? And do you take that on board? Do you internalize that so that it melts your heart and opens you up to God and to eternal things? Teaches you to hate sin again. Teaches you to love Jesus again. Another thing to preach to yourself is, well, what am I building my life on today? What foundation am I stood on? Am I building my life on justification by faith, on the cross of Christ, on the grace of God? Or am I loaded down with inward guilt? Because those are the only two options. They're the only two. Am I repenting of it every day? There's another text to preach to yourself. You know, the closer you get to the light, the more clearly we see the mess, we see our sins. And the more glad we are to repent. In our house, there's a, quite a narrow stairs and some lights, they're quite high up. And they, the bulbs, there's four bulbs and they go. And there's four, one goes, uh, never mind, two goes, never mind, three goes. I think we've got to sort it out. Liz, I say the bulbs are gone. Um, remember what I said earlier. And, um, and then you put the bulbs back in, or she puts the bulbs back in, and uh, suddenly it's bright again, and you think, this stair carpet's got to go. <laughs> you know, when the light is on, you see what's really there. And the closer you're getting to God, the more of a sinner you're going to feel and the more repenting you're going to want to do. Your repentance is not just the beginning of the Christian life. Martin Luther said this, all of life is repentance. Am I forgiving someone every day? That's another great text to preach to yourself. You know, you are not yourself forgiven if you've got a grudge against someone. The Bible says that. Jesus says that. It's one of the most simple, obvious tests Every grudge that I'm bearing, every non-forgiveness thing that I'm holding onto is evidence of my hiding and my pretending. Is the Spirit of God a known and felt reality in my life? So am I conscious that there's a power beyond me, in me? It's not just me and my brain, but there is a new life, a new agenda, a new something, a new impetus, a new direction? Is the Spirit of God a known and felt reality in my life? Because you're either walking with the Spirit or you're doing the works of the flesh. There's no middle way. Okay, I I am going to stop. What do you think? Just another sermon? Okay. Or is there anything more? Is there any sense? You know, there's stuff I need to put right. There's stuff I've got buried deep. There's stuff that I hide. And I'm paying the price. I'm trying to manage it myself. Well, I plead with you. No, not me. David pleads with you. And not just David. Jesus pleads with you. He says, look, you can't live like that. And you don't have to live like that. Bring it. Bring it to Jesus. Hand it over. Confess it. Repent. Give to him the burden that you carry.
He'll take it from you. And he'll take everyone from you. And he'll bear it himself. Okay, let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Uh, Thank you for your word which does search us, which does call us to reality. And Lord, we're sorry for all the times we resist that and uh, let it go over our heads or pick up some kind of shield or adopt a spiritual crash position, whatever it may be. And we pray, Lord, that you'd help us to recognize that you are our loving Father, that Jesus is our tender Savior, that your Holy Spirit is our gracious comforter and friend. And help us to realize we're not dealing with someone that we can manage and keep at arm's length, but we're dealing with someone who knows us and whose great desire is for our good, uh, to lift the burdens that we carry, that we push down deep within us. So save us, Lord, but bring us into the joy of our Lord. Bring us into the fullness of that freedom of knowing that it's all gone forever. Help us to believe it, Lord. Help us to understand it. Help us to see the cross in a way we've never seen it before. Help us to know your arms around us, that we're sat at the table, that there's a ring on our finger, shoes on our feet, and that we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We pray that for this church, and we pray it for many in this community. Think of the many around us who today are hiding and pretending. Lord, help them, we ask. Help this church to help them. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.